0: a desperate search for a mother and daughter abducted on Tuesday after an apparent traffic accident outside Last of Philadelphia. Police heard from Bonnie
1: Sweden and her nine-year-old daughter, Julia Roccozzi. They said they were in the trunk of their abductors. Kids, and
2: I know she's protecting Julia. Oh, I,
1: I uh, indicates that she had been rear-ended in her vehicle uh, by two black males driving what was described as a 1990s black...
2: Very organized, always on top of all the stuff the girls have going on. I would like to tell them to let them go. There's no reason to keep <laughs> them. I don't understand why they would want to keep them. Just let them go.
0: Recently, I posted on social media my teenage wanderlust also known as a desire to run away, hasn't left me. Even as an adult, there are times when I want to run away. Granted, most of us have those feelings sometimes between work stress, juggling home and family, your house, bills, kids, friends, pets. Some days there simply isn't enough of me or you to go around. Sometimes, though, these fantasies about running away aren't triggered by the stress of being an adult. I love the idea of hopping in my car, driving till I run out of gas. Well, not literally run out of gas, but go as far as I possibly can before I have to refill and just stay there for a few days. I love the idea of sneaking away unexpectedly, dropping off the grid, turning off the phone and shutting out the world, provided you don't fake your own kidnapping to do it that's what happened when bucks county pennsylvania resident bonnie sweeten called 911 from the trunk of a car she said she'd been carjacked by two african-american men these men threw bonnie and her nine-year-old daughter into the trunk of their car and took off that phone call initiated a multi-county search for bonnie and julia police found bonnie sweeten's car about 12 hours later in center city philadelphia with a parking ticket on the windshield and no sign of Bonnie Sweeten or her daughter nor was there any sign of these alleged carjackers the carjackers didn't exist and bonnie and julia were at the happiest place on earth what's that question at the end of the super bowl
1: you just won the super bowl what are you going to do next i'm going to disney world Your dreams come
2: true.
0: i guess disney world is where people go when they fake their own kidnapping too I'm Dina Marie, your host on this Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've
1: got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast true crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Twisted
0: Philly. Philly. Bonnie Sweeten was on the way to a doctor appointment. She and her daughter, Julia Roccozzi, her younger daughter from her first marriage to Anthony Roccozzi, were traveling on Street Road in Southampton, Pennsylvania. That's a suburb north of Philly in Bucks County. It's a typical secondary road you'd see in any suburb. Walgreens or CVS dot every few corners. There's mini marts, dentist offices, Italian chain restaurants occasionally a shopping center with a grocery store, amid residential sections every few blocks. It was a little before two in the afternoon. 38-year-old Bonnie and 9-year-old Julia drove along street road in Bonnie's Yukon Denali, a rather large and rather expensive SUV, when suddenly, as they sat at a traffic light at 2nd Street Pike, they were hit from behind. The driver and passenger got out of their big old black Cadillac as did Bonnie and Julia to survey the damage. Pretty standard stuff when you're in an accident, although perhaps you'd tell your child to wait in the car. Before Bonnie Sweeten had a chance to look at her bumper, the driver and passenger of the other car grabbed her and her daughter and threw them in the trunk of their Cadillac. Bonnie had no idea what these men wanted with her, or even more upsetting what they wanted with her daughter. If they wanted to steal her car, they could have just taken it and left her and Julia on the side of the road. Instead, they kidnapped a mother and child on a busy suburban street within view of other drivers, pedestrians, and shops. Miraculously, Bonnie had her cell phone on her. Now, normally when I'm in my car, my phone isn't in my pocket. It's either in my purse or on the seat next to me, and I'd say that's been my M.O. for the last 10 years. But Bonnie Sweeten had her phone with her, and she made a frantic call to 911 from the trunk of the kidnapper's car emergency. Hello. My name is Bonnie Sweeten. We're, we're in a black Cadillac. My daughter and I. Someone, someone has taken the car and they're. 911. What's the nature of your emergency? Hello. Please. I keep getting disconnected. Listen. They hit back of my car, like rear-ended. Like they wanted me, and I got to the accident. Please. Oh God. There's two black men. I would say they're at least six
3: feet tall. One two feet taller. They hit me. They hit Julia, please. Please, I love my kids. Please.
0: Between repeated calls and disconnects, Bonnie Sweeten managed to tell the police what happened to her and her daughter, where the abduction occurred in Southampton, Pennsylvania, and provide a description of her kidnappers. With each call she made to 911, she became more frantic, more aggravated. She must have made close to a dozen calls to 911, but only a few of these actually connected. Bonnie was frantic in her conversations with the emergency services dispatcher. I mean, who wouldn't be? I'd be completely losing my shit if someone snatched me and my daughter, threw us into the trunk of their car, and drove off. I don't even know if I would have the peace of mind to reach for my cell phone and have a coherent conversation with a 911 operator. Southampton police responded immediately to this call, although they didn't have all the details. There was enough information from the limited connections between Bonnie Sweeten and the 911 dispatcher to launch a multi-county search for Bonnie and Julia. Police issued an Amber Alert for Julia Roccozzi, Bonnie Sweeten's nine-year-old daughter. When the police notified Bonnie's ex-husband, Tony Roccozzi, that she and his younger daughter were missing, he was completely unnerved, as was Bonnie's husband, Larry Sweeten. Bonnie and Tony Roccozzi had two children, 15-year-old Paige and nine-year-old Julia. They maintained a good relationship after their divorce in 2003. Both parents were active in their children's lives, especially Bonnie, who was a dance mom, a softball mom, constantly shuttling her girls to and from all of their activities. Bonnie and Larry Sweeten married in 2005. They moved into a house on Saxon Road in Feasterville about a year and a half later. This was a very different home than what Bonnie and her girls lived in prior to her divorce from Tony Ricosi, after 11 years of marriage. Bonnie and her ex-husband lived rather frugally in a much more modest property. But Larry and Bonnie Sweeten bought their home for just under $425,000. It was in a newer development, surrounded by other similar cookie-cutter McMansions. Okay, their house wasn't quite a mansion, but that's what we call them. These lovely, large, single homes with four bedrooms, two-and-a-half bathrooms, a two-car garage, perfectly manicured lawn, and with a landscaper for a husband, the Sweetens' house was expected to have one of the best lawns on the block. Bonnie and Larry Sweeten did fairly well for themselves. Between Larry's landscaping business and Bonnie's job working for a local attorney, where Bonnie was a paralegal slash office manager slash charitable foundation director, the Sweetens did all right. Bonnie drove a Yukon Denali, which cost close to $50,000. They'd recently bought a $30,000 dump truck for Larry to expand his business. The family took amazing vacations, drove expensive cars, lived in an upper-middle-class neighborhood, They certainly weren't millionaires, but the Sweetens were definitely living the American dream. Except there was something missing, a baby. Bonnie's girls were 9 and 15, and although Larry was a loving, doting stepfather, he and Bonnie wanted a baby of their own. They struggled for a while before finally making the decision to try in vitro fertilization. It was a good decision, because in addition to Bonnie's daughters from her first marriage, she and Larry had an 8-month-old daughter named Faith. The day of the abduction, Bonnie's mind was on baby Faith as well as the rest of her family. Besides calling 911, she left a message for her husband, Larry Sweeten, telling him that she loved him and the baby. She also told him her abductors hit her and Julia. Larry had no idea if this was the last message he would ever receive from his wife. One of the first steps the Southampton police took was to go to the accident site at the intersection of Street Road and 2nd Street Pike. Today, there's a Starbucks on one corner, a gas station with a convenience store across the street, and businesses on the other two corners. There's a Bank of America within a view of the intersection, and while these may not have been the same businesses at that intersection nine years ago, these would definitely be the same type of businesses businesses with surveillance cameras, which easily captured most, if not all, cars passing that intersection. This should have been a huge win for the police. No doubt the accident would have been captured on at least one, but probably multiple, surveillance cameras. The police could get different angles of the accident from each corner. Hell, maybe they'd even get a plate number off that big old black Cadillac driven by the abductors. But they didn't. The police didn't get any footage of the accident, Because there was no accident. Nothing. Not at the time Bonnie Sweeten claimed the accident occurred. Not in the hours before or after. No accident involving a GMC Yukon Denali and a black Cadillac, a white woman with a little girl, or two black men anywhere that day on street road or anywhere near that intersection. Southampton police played this information very close to the vest. You might think this was the first indication something wasn't right with Bonnie's story, but it wasn't. At the time Bonnie Sweeten made the 911 call, her cell phone didn't ping a tower in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. It pinged a tower in Center City, Philadelphia. She claimed she made the phone call just after the accident and the abduction. On a good day, with no traffic, it would have taken easily 30 minutes to get from that intersection in Southampton to Center City, Philadelphia. The accident didn't happen. The abduction didn't happen. There were no black men in a big black Cadillac. Bonnie Sweeten and her daughter Julia weren't carjacked. It was all bullshit. At the time of the 911 call, Bonnie and Julia were in her car in Philadelphia on the way to Philly International Airport to board a flight to Disney World. Why would someone fake their own kidnapping, terrify their family and their community, send the police on a wild goose chase that included hunting for two black men through the streets of Philadelphia? Police stopped at least one driver as a result of this hoax. Why would anyone fabricate a horrible crime and blame it on African Americans? Why would Bonnie Sweeten call her husband and leave a message telling him she didn't know if she would make it out alive? All the while, she was safe and sound, her daughter was safe and sound, while her ex-husband was in hell, wondering if his child was alive. Here's where everything starts to get really crazy. Or should I say crazier, because the idea 38-year-old Bonnie Sweeten from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, faked her own kidnapping and that of her daughter is pretty damn crazy to begin with. But it's true. Even though police knew the 911 call was bogus and that accident never happened, They felt Sweeten had a reason for making up this incredible ruse. And she had her nine-year-old daughter with her, so they needed to move cautiously. They had no idea of Bonnie Sweeten's state of mind, or whether Julia was safe with her mother, and they didn't want to do anything that might cause Bonnie to behave in a way that could put her or her daughter at risk. So they didn't let on they knew she'd made everything up. Both Bonnie's husband, Larry Sweeten, and her ex-husband, Tony Roccozzi, initially thought their wife and daughter were kidnapped. Before 2 a.m. on Wednesday, May 27th, police found Bonnie Sweeten's Yukon Denali parked in Center City with a parking ticket on the windshield. There was no damage to the back of the car, nor was there any sign of Bonnie or Julia. By early Wednesday morning, this story had made national news. Bonnie's ex-husband Tony Ricosi and FBI Special Agent J.J. Claver spoke with on the Today Show. And, and uh, Mr. Claver, if I can, let me start with you because I know there's some overnight developments in this case. Can you bring us up today?
1: Well, I think you've summarized it. The overnight development was the recovery of the car in Center City, Philadelphia, around 2 a.m. Uh, that car was taken to the upper Southampton Township Police Department and we'll have agents and detectives from there processing that car forensically today.
0: This was the SUV. And, and what condition was that car in? And uh, what more can you tell us about the possibly finding the abductor's car as well?
1: Well, we don't have any uh, information about that. I know that uh, some of the news uh, agencies were reporting there was a Cadillac found. But uh, right now, there's really no information about uh, any Cadillac uh, being connected to this. Are there any? Found.
0: Any new tips coming into the tip line there on, on the whereabouts of Bonnie and Julia? Uh, we're following
1: up on a lot of leads. We are uh, getting some, some good information. Uh, there's a lot of leads we have to follow up on and, and we've been doing that overnight and are continuing to do that today.
0: Of course, uh, the greatest lead was that 911 distress call that Bonnie placed while she was in the trunk of her abductor's vehicle. What other information was she able to give you about the, uh, the abductors in this case?
1: While there was not a lot of specific information given out. And again, because of the ongoing nature of this, there's not a lot of information we can release about that right now. Our number one priority is getting this nine-year-old uh, girl and her mother back safely.
0: As I rewatched this old news footage, because I remember this one so vividly, I was struck by something I didn't pick up then, but I could sense now. And that was hesitation in Special Agent Claver. Not merely the inability to discuss facts of an open investigation, but he was playing possum. After everything came out a few days after that appearance, it made sense, but I didn't think about it then. Watching it over the last few weeks, after everything I know now, Claver and the police knew so much, and they hid what they knew in the hopes Bonnie would surface. Once the police realized Bonnie Sweeten's story was untrue, they quickly explored other avenues. What was going on at home and at work with her friends, with her husband? They uncovered some pretty shocking stuff. On Tuesday morning, May 26th, Bonnie left a note on the counter for her husband, Larry, that said, your great father, I love you, with $200 cash. Then she packed up Julia and her baby, Faith. She drove to the bank and withdrew $12,000 cash from her and Larry's accounts. She dropped her infant daughter off at daycare and then, with her other daughter Julia in tow, visited the home of former co-worker Jill Jenkinson. Bonnie told Jill she needed her driver's license. A few months earlier, Jill noticed the 401k from her former employer, where she worked with Bonnie, was empty. Sweeten explained the accounts had been closed when the law firm closed, and Jill would get a check like the other employees. That morning at Jill's house, Bonnie told her there was a problem getting the check from her 401k and she needed a copy of Jill's driver's license to get the check issued. Jill Jenkinson hadn't worked with Bonnie about a year, but they'd been friends. She'd known her a while. The request seemed reasonable to her, so she handed over her license. I'm sure you're guessing Bonnie Sweeten didn't really need to make a copy of Jill Jenkinson's driver's license. Like Bonnie, Jill is a petite, slender blonde. Jill Jenkinson looks a lot younger than Bonnie Sweeten, though. She is younger than Bonnie, but they're both blonde and fair, and Bonnie Sweeten counted on that fact. She needed Jill's license for something else. She needed it to get out of Pennsylvania without anyone knowing Bonnie Sweeten left the state. Bonnie ditched her car in Center City, and she and Julia took a cab to the Philadelphia International Airport. There, she purchased one-way tickets to Orlando, Florida. She paid cash using some of that twelve grand she pulled out of the bank earlier that morning. Bonnie used Julia's driver's license as her ID. It worked at the ticket counter. No one questioned her. No one asked if she had another form of photo ID, something that looked maybe a little more like her. She passed herself off as Jill Jenkinson without any issues. But that's the ticket counter, an airline agent, not a Federal Transportation Safety Authority agent, or TSA. There's no way she'd get past a TSA agent with someone else's ID. Bonnie had no problem getting through security. Glance at the driver's license. Glance at Bonnie, a.k.a. Jill. Glance at the name on the ticket, which matched the name on the license. Minors don't need to show ID. Why would a mother who seemed to have it all? A successful career, beautiful, loving children, a great husband, and a great relationship with her ex-husband. A beautiful home in a safe, nurturing community. Fake her own kidnapping. Steal a friend's driver's license to hide her identity and flee the state with her daughter in tow. She terrified her family and her community, filed a false report, stole someone's identity, showed up as a racist by saying she was kidnapped by two black men. Because of what she did, an Amber Alert was issued. Police, FBI, people all over the Delaware Valley were searching for Bonnie Sweeten and her daughter, Julia, while she was getting her Mickey on down at the castle. The question in everyone's mind was why. Bonnie Sweeten stole Jill Jenkinson's identification. And in a way, it was Jill who broke this case. Once she realized Bonnie and Julia were missing, she alerted police that Bonnie had been at her house and borrowed her driver's license. Yeah, I did air quotes when I said borrowed, but you can't see that. Now that the police had that information, coupled with the fact they already knew the kidnapping was a hoax, it wasn't a stretch to figure out Bonnie Sweeten intended to leave town. The police from Bucks County in Philadelphia quickly discovered Bonnie's fraudulent purchase at the airport and the flight she and Julia boarded to Orlando. In parallel with this, they turned their investigative eye back to the Sweeten residence and her husband, Larry. Could he think of any reason why his wife would fabricate such an elaborate scheme and disappear as if she were never coming back? According to Larry Sweeten, aside from a few arguments that most married couples experience, Bonnie had gone through a tough time getting pregnant, and anyone who's tried and had difficulty conceiving, including me, can absolutely understand how that could put some stress on a marriage. She also endured IVF treatments. That's how she and Larry Sweeten were able to conceive their daughter Faith, and that can take a lot out of you physically and emotionally. But beyond that, Larry thought their marriage was good. Larry, I hate to tell you this, but you had no fucking clue what was happening in your household. He was completely unaware of the money withdrawn from his and Bonnie's bank accounts. His wife ran the household bills, and that's not uncommon. In some partnerships, one spouse is a bit more organized or simply doesn't mind sitting down and paying the bills each month. Or nowadays, I guess it's more like making sure everything is set up on electronic bill pay. But Larry Sweeten left all of that up to his wife. In fact, he told the police and even stated in interviews he had no idea about his family's finances. It always seemed like the bills were paid. In another interview, Larry stated if he was ever going to spend more than a few hundred dollars at a time, Bonnie asked him to check with her first, and she would let him know if it was okay. Very quickly, a Pandora's box of financial duplicity opened, spewing out more than just the $12,000 that disappeared on the morning of May 26th. It would take months, if not years, to dig through all of it. But within 48 hours of Bonnie Sweeten's disappearance, Bucks County Police reported they believed she may have embezzled up to $600,000 from family members and her employer. Larry Sweeten had no idea if his mortgage was even paid.
2: I don't know what's going on, Bon, but here's your daughter. She misses you. You have a ton of support. Whatever kind of trouble you're in, whatever's going on, everybody will come together and help you out. I'm here for you. We have a brand new daughter who needs her mom. Please come home and turn yourself in and don't do anything
0: stupid. As these details emerged, the police had to get Bonnie and Julia back to Pennsylvania. Once they learned she was in Orlando... They were able to track her to the Grand Floridian Hotel in Disney World, where she'd paid cash in advance for three nights. Good thing she pulled out twelve grand out of her and Larry's accounts, because the Grand Floridian is one of the most lavish, opulent, and well-appointed hotels in the park. Park surveillance cameras picked up the pair throughout the day, but the last thing the police wanted to do was create a scene, because they had no idea how Bonnie Sweeten might react, and they wanted to protect her daughter Julia Ricosi at all costs. So they watched her throughout the day, and instead of apprehending Bonnie in the park, the FBI and Orange County police waited for Bonnie Sweeten and Julia at their hotel. Bonnie was arrested at the Grand Floridian a little after 8.30 p.m. on Wednesday, May 27th, a day and a half after she began this subterfuge. Julia was taken into protective custody with the police until her father, Tony Roccozzi, arrived in Orlando on Thursday, May 28th. She'd been scared. No matter how hard the Orlando police tried to assuage her fears, she was a little girl who watched her mom get arrested after a day hanging out with Cinderella eating ice cream. The juxtaposition of those two things, watching your mom get arrested against the backdrop of princesses and palm trees, how does a nine-year-old process that? The next day when her father arrived, she was so relieved and there was a short video of them in the back of a car heading to the airport with Julia talking about her favorite Phillies players. After a short appearance in an Orange County, Florida courtroom Friday morning, May 29th, Bonnie Sweeten was extradited to Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where she was charged with identity theft and filing false reports. These crimes are misdemeanors. They may or may not have jail time. There may be probation. It depends on the extent of the theft and the false reports. These were her obvious crimes. Before we talk about the not-so-obvious crimes, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Bonnie Sweeten's false report, the 911 call, specifically the description of her abductors. Bonnie Sweeten wasn't the first white person to blame a crime they committed on black men, nor was she the first woman to do it in Philadelphia. In 1989, 20-year-old Tanya Daquiri murdered her seven-week-old son because she couldn't cope with the challenges of a new baby. After murdering her son, she and her husband, Philip Daquiri, disposed of the baby in Neshaminy Creek in Bucks County. But that's not the story Tanya told police. She told the police her baby had been snatched out of her arms. First, after a doctor appointment, then she said it happened at a mall. And both times, the story she told, she described the kidnapper as a black man. A little further north, in Boston, but also in 1989, we had the murders of Carol Stewart and her unborn child, when her husband Charles claimed he and his wife were stopped at a red light in Roxbury and attacked by a black man wielding a gun who forced Charles to drive him to Mission Hill. Charles Stewart claimed this man robbed him and his wife and then shot both of them. Charles was only shot in the stomach and survived, but his wife Carol was shot in the head. There was no black man with a gun. Charles Stewart shot his pregnant wife and then shot himself to make it look like he'd been injured in the robbery. He killed his wife for insurance money. I can keep going. Susan Smith, everybody knows about Susan Smith. She's on so many true crime podcasts. Susan Smith blamed the disappearance of her beautiful little boys on a black man she claimed carjacked her and then drove off with her boys in the back seat. We know that was total bullshit. She murdered her children when she pushed her car into a lake. In many of these cases, especially in the case out of Boston, but even in the case of Bonnie Sweeten, where the police felt early on her story was bogus, black men were stopped. Some of them were searched, questioned, because a white woman decided to say she was kidnapped by a black man or a white man decided to say his pregnant wife was murdered by a black man. You can't tell me these accusations aren't intentional. There's an expectation among some people that if they say a crime was committed by an African-American, there's a greater likelihood police will get laser-focused on that and not look anywhere else. I watched an old cable program called It's Your Call with a local personality named Lynn Doyle. Lynn would invite experts onto her talk show and discuss the latest news and happenings around the Delaware Valley. Of course, she had a few episodes about Bonnie Sweeton. In one episode, one of her guests was Tariq El-Shabazz, a partner in the law firm of El-Shabazz and Harris, and a former Philadelphia assistant district attorney. El-Shabazz said he instantly knew Sweeten's 911 call was garbage because, in his words, there was no way two black men in a black Cadillac are going to drive into a predominantly white community and kidnap a white woman and her child.
2: Right. Precisely, I don't know one that's going to kidnap a, a, a in midday, a white woman, her daughter and put them in the trunk of a car if they're taking that car. Secondly, she came up in the middle, in the middle of, of Buck's County. County. Right. Forget that part. But the beauty part about it is that <laughs> the crime that she said occurred. That's what they used to do before carjacking became a crime. Remember, Chucky, way back 10 years ago, people used to bump into cars and go out to get it. And then they jump in your car and drive away. This is the first time I heard of a bumping again, because once it became a federal offense to carjack, it seemed like it ended all of the bumping and taking of cars. So I think that that was one of the problems. Second thing is they checked immediately the cell phone tower.
0: El Shabazz cited the changes in Pennsylvania laws that made carjacking a felony. And once someone realized they could do some serious time for hitting and snatching someone else's car, those incidents stopped. The idea that Bonnie Sweeten's actions put the black community at risk were barely discussed when everything came to light. Of course, the manpower and money invested in the search, the harm done by making a false 911 report, and an Amber Alert when a child really hadn't been abducted. All of that was discussed at length as it should have been. But other than Tariq El Shabazz, you would be hard pressed to find many people in the public talking about the impacts Bonnie Sweeten's actions had on the African American community. In another segment on that same show, Bonnie Sweeten's defense attorney Lou Busico said,
3: Well, listen, she certainly doesn't get an A for originality. Uh, unfortunately, she uh, bought, brought to the forefront uh, an ugly. A story that had a racial component. A stereotype. There's no doubt. And for that, she's deeply sorry. I mean, we all like to believe in this country in 2009 with the current occupant of the Oval Office, we're way beyond that. The, the reality is. Did
2: she think that through or was no. that a spur of the moment when she was
3: on the phone kind of thought? To sound like a, a lawyer, it was both. And here's what I mean by that. At the time the call was made, she was driving in an area on her cell phone where she believed there were cameras monitoring traffic. She also knew, as most people know, that a phone has either a GPS or some type of device that can make the phone be tracked from where the call came, or at least generally speaking. At the time of the call, uh, unfortunately and coincidentally, there were two elderly African-American gentlemen in a dark sedan in front of her. In order to give the call a somewhat ring of truth, if you will, she thought, if the camera ever could ascertain my position, at least there will be a sedan close to where I am at and ironically occupied by two African-American gentlemen. So
2: you're telling us that when she made that call, had there been two... 20-something white men in a car in front of her, she may very well have used them as...
3: as yes, to confirm the, the, the location. It was in no way, shape, or form. And I, and I welcome anyone to, to, to ask about Bonnie in, in terms of what her uh, reputation is. It was in no way racist. Absolutely not. And she apologizes profusely that people would take it that way, but she understands why they would.
0: But I can't say that I believe her choice of abductors was unintentional and that had there been two young white men in a car nearby, she would have used a description of them instead. I just don't buy it. Bonnie Sweeten returned to Pennsylvania on Friday, May 29th in 2009. She was immediately taken to court in Bucks County for her preliminary arraignment where the judge set bail at $1 million. Bucks County District Attorney Michelle Henry fought for a steep bail and the judge agreed. 24 hours after being incarcerated, family and friends raised enough money for the 10% bond of $100,000, and Bonnie was out of jail on Saturday, June 1st. Bonnie had to stand trial for identity theft and filing false reports, but other charges were yet to come. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Sweetens lifestyle cost them about $12,000 each month. Their monthly mortgage payments were $4,000. Then on top of that, they spent close to $8,000 a month in other living expenses. Although Larry Sweeten typically worked seven days a week and Bonnie worked full time as a paralegal slash office manager slash charity director, their combined salaries were not enough to cover their expenses, not the way that they were living. Plus, in 2007, they had the added expenses of in vitro fertilization, which can average $12,000 for each treatment. According to the district attorney's office, the Sweetens' IVF bills were over $100,000. How did they sustain their lifestyle? Bonnie Sweeten found a way to supplement her income. Actually, she found numerous ways. First, there was her employer, Deb Carlitz, a local attorney. Bonnie worked for Deb for about 13 years. But sometime after 2005, she began rerouting settlement funds into her own account. When Deb won a case or processed a settlement on behalf of a client, it was Bonnie's job to process all of the paperwork, deposit settlement checks, and pay out settlements to clients. Sometimes those payments took a really long time to process. Sometimes, even though a case had been settled, there might be more paperwork required than was originally thought. When Deb Carlett's clients complained to Bonnie their settlements were taking longer than expected, Bonnie always had a reason or an excuse. Then there were Deb Carlett's paychecks, her own paychecks, which, as the office administrator and manager, Bonnie would take to the bank for Deb and deposit not into Deb's account, but into her own accounts. According to Deb Carlitz, her husband made a very lucrative salary, so she didn't notice her paychecks weren't being deposited into her bank account. Could you imagine? You're so rich or so obtuse, or perhaps both, you don't realize thousands of dollars are missing from your account. Deb admitted to the local news, to the police, that she hadn't been paying attention to what was going on in her business. Deb Carlitz also ran a charitable foundation, although at the time of Bonnie Sweeten's arrest, there wasn't much information available about the Carlitz Foundation other than a website which indicated the charity raised funds for autism research. That site has long since been taken down, but that was another source of supplemental income for Bonnie. Between stealing settlement checks her boss's paychecks. Diverting funds from the charity, Bonnie Sweeten stole over $600,000 from her employer. And on top of that, she took out about $150,000 in personal loans or mortgages in her boss's name. Bonnie might be able to pass as an older version of Jill Jenkinson, but she and Deb Carlitz look nothing alike. How the hell a bank granted her loans and her boss's name is beyond me, unless she did it all online, which, while I couldn't find details on that, I think that must be how she took out loans in Deb Carlitz's name. Oh, and that money that was missing from Jill Jenkinson's 401k, the one Bonnie told her had been closed, but you'll get a check. Yeah, Bonnie stole that too. No one was beyond the reach of Bonnie Sweeten's greedy fingers, including her family. Victor Biandino, the grandfather of Bonnie's first husband, Tony Roccozzi, had a retirement fund totaling over $280,000. Bonnie managed to steal that out from under him in December 2008. Teresa McCord, Tony Roccozzi's mother and Bonnie Sweeten's ex-mother-in-law, quickly found out the money was gone and that it was Bonnie who forged a check. When she confronted her, Bonnie Sweeten told McCord that both she and Debbie Carlitz had been arrested, and she took the money for bail. McCord didn't buy it. Then Bonnie made up another story. She told her ex-mother-in-law she used the money to pay client settlements on behalf of Deb's law firm, because Debbie had stolen the client's money, and Bonnie was just trying to do right by them. Here's the thing. The Carlitz Law Firm had been closed for months because Deb Carlitz lost her attorney's license long before Bonnie Sweeten forged a check and stole her ex-husband's grandfather's retirement fund. Eventually, Bonnie Sweeten admitted what she'd done. She admitted she'd forged a check from Victor Biodino's account and cashed it. Initially, Teresa McCord, Bonnie's ex-mother-in-law, told her she would work with her. Bonnie Sweeten was the mother of Teresa's grandchildren. She didn't want to see her go to jail. And Bonnie spent months coming up with excuses for Teresa about why she couldn't get the money back and then how she was going to try to get the money back. Then Bonnie offered to refinance her home and thought she'd get about $160,000 to pay back more than half of what she'd stolen. But Tony's grandfather was old. He was in his 90s, suffering from ill health. The family needed that money to cover his care. For months, Bonnie Sweeten emailed her ex-mother-in-law and her ex-husband. Excuse after excuse about why she'd taken the money, what she was doing to get it back. It was insane. Shortly before, Bonnie and Julia fled to Orlando. Tony's mother told Bonnie she had to pay them back or the family was going to the police. Sweeten asked for just a little more time. She told her ex-mother-in-law her parents were helping her with the repayment. And they were. To the tune of $28,000, not $280,000. What did Bonnie do? She doctored the check from her parents, turned it into a check for $280,000, deposited that check into Larry's landscaping business account, wrote a check to her former mother-in-law. That check promptly bounced around the same time Bonnie and Julia were on their way to Disney World. Bonnie Sweeten fabricated a horrible lie that shocked everyone, horrified her community, alarmed the police, left her husband, her ex-husband, and their families petrified because she'd stolen a shitload of money, had no way to pay it back, and everything was about to come crashing down around her. In July 2009, just about two months after Bonnie's kidnapping hoax, her husband Larry Sweeten filed for divorce. According to her attorney, Bonnie was shocked. Larry insisted he would stand by her and help her get through this ordeal. Maybe by then, he'd figured out the extent of her fraudulent activity and decided he wanted out. Bonnie Sweeten stood trial for identity theft and false reports on August 28, 2009. She stood in the Bucks County courtroom and cried. She apologized. Her defense attorney argued how remorseful she was. She was also a new mother, besides her older daughters, including the one she took with her when she skipped town. Judge Jeff Finley said, I'm not buying it. Literally. That's what he said in court. That was a quote. According to court records, the judge called Bonnie a calculating, manipulative, cold-blooded woman and sentenced her to between 9 to 24 months in prison, plus 50 hours of community service upon release. Bonnie was released for good behavior just six months later in February 2010 and sentenced to house arrest for the remainder of her sentence. Sweeten was able to see her children, but only during supervised visits. About two weeks after Bonnie Sweeten finished her house arrest for the identity theft and false report convictions, she was charged federally on July 2nd, 2010, with fraud, money laundering, and identity theft. She was held without bail. On August 12th, Sweeten's public defender appealed the bail decision with U.S. District Court. But the U.S. Assistant Attorney made the same arguments judges heard in the lower courts. Sweeten was a significant flight risk. She was also a damn good forger. Not only did we have forged checks, but Sweeten was a notary public, and somehow, years earlier, she convinced the state of New Jersey she'd passed the New Jersey State Bar and was actually an attorney. Was Sweeten the cold-blooded schemer she'd been called in court? Was she suffering from mental illness, as her attorneys claimed, possibly the results of an earlier addiction to Ritalin, or struggling to get pregnant, multiple miscarriages, postpartum depression, I know plenty of women who struggled to get and stay pregnant, myself included. Speaking for myself, yes, those experiences absolutely affected my mental health. And I can imagine some of the women I know who had similar experiences suffered from depression or anxiety, even if it was for a short time. But out of all the women I know, either directly or peripherally, even some who suffered postpartum depression... I don't know one woman who pulled the kind of shit Bonnie Sweeten pulled. And it started years before the IVF treatments, years before her daughter was born, years before she would have experienced postpartum. Ultimately, the bail denial was upheld by the U.S. District Judge. Based on what he said was substantial evidence, the defendant has the ability to engage in fraud and deceit, including the creation of false identification like driver's licenses, passports, court orders and loan documents. On June 22nd, 2011, Bonnie Sweeten changed her plea in the federal case from not guilty to guilty. And finally, on January 27th, 2012, after months of hearing with witnesses for both the prosecution and the defense, Bonnie Sweeten was sentenced to 100 months in prison, which equaled about eight years and four months. She was given credit for time already served since July 2010
2: very sorry for my actions but waking up in prison it clearly is a reminder every day of my actions there's not been a day that i don't have regret i don't foresee a day in my future that i'll ever not have regret i have sadness i have shame anger with myself how could i do these things to people that trusted me that i called my family that i called my friends My oldest daughter told me one day I was her hero after all this happened. I don't know how, because uh, she wakes up every day without me. I never really understood the term to hit rock bottom, and I did, and I hit it hard. Not sure where I went wrong at first. I ran away, knowing I dug a hole for myself I couldn't get out of. No matter what I did, I knew it was wrong. And I should pay for that. And I know I'm not going home for a while. My actions were cruel and sick for my parents. You didn't deserve any of this. You did not raise me this way. And I did what I did and I know do I have to be punished. I'm sorry beyond words for anything and everything that I've done. And when you go to prison, you realize how much you don't need anything monetary. (laughs) You didn't need any of that stuff. Your honor, I'm sorry for what I've done. Sorry for the money and the time that this has cost everyone. I can't put regret, regret into words enough. I can't put the apologies into words enough, but I tell you I am very sorry for what I've done.
0: I'd like to tell you, after Bonnie Sweeten was released from prison, she kept her shit together. I'd like to, but I don't think I can because of some information I found about an incident that occurred this spring. On April 19th, 2018, Bonnie, who is now going by her former married name, Racozi, allegedly shoplifted fruit and greeting cards at a Doylestown Acme. Doylestown isn't far from where she lived prior to being incarcerated. According to the police report, at 11.55 a.m., Bonnie Roccozzi was accused of placing over $130 worth of grapes and cards into her purse. But when she checked out, she only paid for one bottle of iced tea and one card. As she left the store, she was stopped by the manager, who then promptly called the police. This was one of the most confusing stories I've ever researched for Twisted Philly. The breadth and depth of Bonnie Sweeten's scams were much farther reaching than I'd ever realized. I can see how years of theft and lies, then more theft, then more lies, in an effort to cover everything up, could make someone completely snap. I'd like to thank Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this and almost every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysarah.com and download her music on iTunes. Thank you to Josh Hallmark, host of the Karen and Ellen Letters, Playlist, and Our Americana podcasts for the voiceover acting as Larry Sweeten. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.